0: Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. All right, everybody. Are you ready for some more sacred cow tipping today? Well, today I'd like to talk about Churchianity's interpretation of one particular verse. When Jesus said, Judge not, lest you also be judged. And that follows through with, For the measure you use unto another, it will be measured unto you. Or some semblance of that, that's a bit of a paraphrase. And how do the Churchians interpret that? Well, essentially, don't ever judge another person, because otherwise God is going to judge you harshly if you judge people. So don't judge. Don't ever judge another person. Never, never, never judge another person ever, ever, ever. Really? Oh, very interesting. Let's talk first about the issue that that raises with some of the other scriptures we find, not just in Bible in, gen- in the Bible in general, but also from Jesus himself. Let's go to the Old Testament first. In the, book of the, in the book of the Psalms, or actually no, I believe it's the Proverbs, we read, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. And an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend. What really does that entail? What does that mean? Does that mean if your friend slugs you, if your friend cuts you, if your friend hurts you in some way deliberately, you can trust that? Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense now, does it? An enemy multiplies kisses. What is a kiss? What is this talking about? Back in those times and still very commonly in the east today, kissing is a way to show friendliness, cordiality, familiarity. It's a way of showing that you're comfortable with the other person. So if somebody in their culture is multiplying kisses, they're trying to do the trying to do the physical action It brings them into a comfortable and close position with the person they are kissing. What are they really doing? They're flattering. Are they not? It's like a guy who's trying to rather shrewdly get into a woman's close proximity. And all he's doing is complimenting her and acting as if they've been already been the best of friends for a while, perhaps, or something to that effect, right? He's essentially trying to weasel his way in and act in such a way as if they were already familiar. It's a way to try to hoodwink the brain into using those kinds of behaviors of the individual, into using those kinds of behaviors that follow with the stimuli that you are given but it's dishonest. Typically a person who uses that kind of a tactic in order to get close to a woman is not somebody who's going to be trustworthy down the road. If they're not willing to do the hard work to earn trust from a woman, what would you why would you think that they would be he would be willing to do the kind of hard work to raise children, to earn a good living, to have good relationships with his employees or customers or boss? So when an enemy multiple, or sorry, when somebody multiplies kisses, without having real familiarity with you already, when somebody multiplies compliments, when somebody multiplies flatteries, without having done the work of essentially even earning the place in your life to have a voice so that their compliments will really mean something. In other words, they know you well enough. And you know them well enough to know that if they give you a compliment, if this person gives you a compliment, you can believe what they say. Again, you can pretty easily imagine, I'm sure, the alternative. Somebody who keeps multiplying compliments when they have not earned that place. It can fool the unexperienced, but not those of us who have had some experience in relationships, particularly if we have had experiences in relationships that have gone sour. So when somebody is multiplying compliments, multiplying compliments, especially if we've had any experience, we know not to trust that person. By the way, doesn't that mean that we would be judging them? In other words, we would be evaluating them, would we not? This person keeps trying to compliment compliment me, keeps trying to make me believe that he or she thinks that I'm the bee's knees, but we barely know each other well, aren't you judging that person? Aren't you evaluating their actions? But we'll get more into that later. The wounds from, from a friend can be trusted. These are put into stark contrast. What does it really mean? The wounds of a friend can be trusted in contrast with that. What does it not mean? And I know many of us already know this going in, but just getting down to the brass tacks, trying to evaluate things reasonably. A friend who does the very opposite of multiplying kisses. In other words, a friend who is willing to tell you the hard truths. A friend who is willing to tell you you tell you that you did poorly, tell you that you did something wrong. To show you that you're not all that and a bag of chips. Doesn't that wound all of us? All of us want to believe that we are good people. We want to justify all of our actions, no matter what they are, because we want to believe that we're good. Then if an honest friend comes along, that is a genuine friend, people who lie to us all the time aren't friends. Those are enemies. Again, that's one of the reasons why this proverb says what it says. It's an enemy who multiplies kisses. It's a friend who hasn't always wound, but if they wound, you can trust them. In fact, the very fact that they're willing to criticize you or critique you, you might say, to again point out that you may have done something wrong, shows the fact that they are a real friend of material. My definition of a friend is somebody who adds real value to your life. And of course, if you're going to be a friend to them, that means that you're adding real value to theirs. One real value is the truth. But sometimes the truth are things that we don't want to hear. Now, if that is the correct interpretation of that verse, does that not mean that a friend needs to judge you in order to give you those wounds that can be trusted? to give you the criticisms, the critiques that can actually improve who you are as an individual. I should think so. So let's go further with Jesus. Jesus gives us the analogy of a person who's trying to clean the speck out of the eye of another person while having a plank in their own. An obvious example of hypocrisy and not universalizing, sorry, not universalizing your morality, your virtues, your values. Clean get the plank out of your own eye. And as he ends the story, he points out, so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, a lot of people who are in the more churchian kind of perspective, reading or listening to this tale, this analogy, this parable, just think about the plank in your own eye, they almost exclusively, almost every time I've heard this preached about, talked about in large Christian company, all they talk about is self-judgment, all they talk about is the fact that we are so blind to our own mistakes and how dare we do that when, and meanwhile, judge other people, another indication that we should never judge somebody else. Oh, really? Really? Aren't you leaving out the last part so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye? Does that not imply removing the speck from your brother's eye? The parable is about judging, evaluating, seeing other people's flaws and pointing them out. It's just pointing out that we should judge our own as well. If we're going to look at somebody else's flaws, we should be making sure about our own especially if they're in parallel. Now, finally, before going into further discussion, Jesus also talks about the fact that we will know people by their fruits. In other words, it doesn't matter what values they acclaim. It doesn't matter the sorts of things they espouse, if their actions are rancid, if they seemingly, and even by reputation, are just nice, good, kind, trying to do the right things, at least again, apparently, but in their wake is just a trail of destruction, broken relationships, then it is upon those fruits, it is the results of their actions upon which we can see the person. But once again, does that not mean that in order to see those fruits, do we not have to evaluate, do we not have to judge the results of that person's actions? And then further judge that as a result of seeing that person's actions, if the fruit is rancid, we evaluate that the person is not as good as their reputation would suggest, or their outward words and claims and stated values. Actions speak louder than words. But this also involves judging them as such. On the other hand, if somebody is very unpopular, disliked, and we can understand this pretty well in the modern age of media suppression from much of the mainstream media. But you get to know this person or they get to see this person's work actually and their fruits, that is their actions, the results of what they're doing is a bunch of good. Mended relationships, mended minds, healed bodies. Healed souls and spirits. Spirits... That have been, spirits and souls that have been turned towards God. If that is the results of their actions, would we not say that what is said about them has no bearing on what they actually do? And because what they are doing is good, we can judge that person to be good, in spite of even what may be said about them, in spite of a bad reputation in public. So the churchians may come to me and say, oh, but if you judge people, if you call people out as bad and so on, that's mean and that's not nice and that turns people away from God. Oh, really? Take a look at Jesus himself. What does he do after entering Jerusalem when he's about to be crucified? This is in the book of Matthew. I know... um, I'm just going through through it right now. It might be in the other Gospels as well. He points out that these people are hypocrites, that is the Pharisees. He talks about how fed up he is with them, if you're reading the message translation. He calls them snakes. He points out that the converts that they make are worsened by their conversion. He evaluates, he judges the Pharisees as being horrid, evil people. Or at very least, people who are doing great evil. Ah, but you turn to me and say, oh, but that's Jesus. He has perfect judgment, and he has every right to do that. We can't, because we don't have perfect judgment. Oh, really? Now, of course, I would agree that we don't have perfect judgment. But Jesus himself also pointed out, you can see the signs of the weather in the morning and in the night, and you cannot evaluate the signs of the times. In other words, we are able to judge and evaluate many things competently. How is it that the times are not just as obvious to you? See, what I'm trying to get at is that Jesus could evaluate the times. Jesus could see things that the other people around him very often completely missed. And he judged them as lacking for not being able to do so. As I've argued in previous podcasts, or at least one, Jesus is to me what the personality and my interpretation of what he really was doing is that he was showing us what the character and personality of God is like in a human, within human limitations. And again, if you doubt me on that, read Paul. He specifically points out how Jesus, disca- or, sorry, um, forwent his glory. He did not take the advantages of being God. He showed us what it should be possible. He is our example of how to live. If that is true, then for Jesus to evaluate wolves in sheep's clothing, so to speak, as being wolves in sheep's clothing, should give us permission to do the same. And I'm not saying willy-nilly. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that we should just judge, 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 evaluate, evaluate everybody really fast and just throw people under the bus. No but I am talking about being smart. There are some people out there in the real world who do not have the luxury of taking time to evaluate people. You know why? Because they've already been deeply, deeply hurt. If anything, what what they struggle with is not having a hard time judging people in some spiritual sense is in being afraid of people. They can't stop it, not because they're doing some moral bad, but because they've been so hurt that they react to people viscerally. They react to people as if they're bad, regardless of their actual intentions, because they maybe winked or made some other subtle action that reminds them of their abusers. The reason why I'm bringing this up is that the churchians have a tendency to make things sound as if they're so very black and white. Don't judge somebody as in don't choose to judge somebody. Don't make the decision to evaluate a person's character. Or maybe they mean something else, and I'll get to that in a little while. There's another possible interpretation, which I don't disagree with. But in, but in any case, people who have been hurt evaluate people automatically without any intention and then feel terrible about themselves because the churchians are telling them not to judge, not to judge, not to judge, but they can't help it because their trauma has not been dealt with yet. They're not making a choice. Imagine if you had rear-ended somebody very suddenly without realizing it. I bring up this example because I've done this. You're backing up in your vehicle as you normally would, and then suddenly you just smash into something. You know what, you know what happens after that? Well, essentially a trauma response. Not a bad one. Might be a very, In fact, it's a very good one in its own nature. You're going to be very cautious going forward whenever you back up, especially in that particular vehicle, if you keep it, about what might be behind you. Why? Because you suffered a traumatic experience. You're not even so much choosing to do so. Your body is doing that automatically as a trauma response. And again, as I said, that's a good trauma response in a sense. Some people need to teach it its place, as I have had to in the very same instance. And know that it's there to warn you, but not to badger you, not to dominate you. But whatever the case, it's a very good thing to be aware of what's behind you when you're backing up in a vehicle, especially if you have hit something or someone. I mean another vehicle. In the same way, somebody who has been traumatized, say, by a big burly man, is going to be leery of any big burly men who, especially if they, behave in a similar fashion. And I mean out in public. I don't mean in private, because that person's never going to be with the big burly guy in private, most likely, unless and until they've dealt with their trauma. But they're not choosing to just go right ahead and believe and insinuate and judge that this person's evil. No, they're suffering a trauma response. And it's a very understandable one because they have been hurt. See, when we fail to evaluate evil people as being evil, what motivation do we give them to approve? This, to me, is the most pernicious part of the don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, sacred cow of churchianity. When we refuse to evaluate evil people, to judge evil people as being evil, or at very least, To judge people as doing very wicked things. We're not doing a thing to help them recognize their mistakes, their bad behavior, their hypocrisy. When Jesus was doing this towards the Pharisees, do you think he wasn't being loving? Of course not. He was being specifically loving. He was knowing and acting towards the good to the best of his ability. Again, within his chosen human limitations. So he points out to them very bluntly, very specifically, you guys are doing evil. And if any of them were listening, and as we know from Scripture, some of them did, by the way. I don't know about that day and that instance, but some Pharisees did listen to him. They might have realized. They might have woken up. But see, if he were to have stood there that day and say, oh, you Pharisees, you just help people so much with all of your legalism and all of your judgments and all of your rules, you're just helping people live a good life. Do you think there's any chance the Pharisees would have possibly seen their hypocrisy if that's the way Jesus had behaved? But that is the way that a lot of Christians behave today who believe in all this churchian nonsense. Don't judge, don't judge. We don't help people to improve when we refuse to evaluate their actions, when we refuse to evaluate their motives, when we refuse to call out bad things, bad thoughts, when they're presented to us, that is. So what is the right way of interpreting all of this, in my opinion? Judge not, lest you also be judged. For the measure you use unto others, it will be measured unto you. Is there any connotation in there? Any connotation at all? Read it for yourself. That this has to do with God's judgment. No. No looking at the speck in another's eye without seeing the plank in your own. Does that have to do with God either? No. I'm not saying that people say that it does. But I'm pointing out that these two are closer to parallel. Jesus talked about the same thing many times in many different instances. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Beware about judging, beware about judging, beware about judging. You've heard it said this, you've heard it said that, you've heard it said this. He liked to repeat himself. And of course he did. He was going from place to place, and he kept changing how he put it, but he would bring up the same points a lot. Is there any doubt, is there any reason to believe that if he brings up judgments, judging other people more than once, he would be inconsistent with himself? Of course not. So if we're allowed to evaluate, to judge a person by their fruits, why wouldn't we be allowed to judge others and use measures upon them? See, we should have... Obviously, as Christians, we should have a system of values, virtues, moral codes that we follow, we choose to follow, we claim, and we consistently follow. Don't want to be the man with the plank in his eye. Should we not also, therefore, the more we really hold ourselves to a set of moral values... Expect that of other people if they're going to be close to us. And again, I want to emphasize this point. I'm not saying we require this of literally everyone else. No, I'm just saying that if we're going to have people close to us as friends, even as family, i.e. the kind of family we choose, like spouse, that they at least follow pretty close to the same set of moral codes and virtues, What I'm getting at here is that I think this runs both ways. And I know I haven't really spoken about what specifically I think of these verses yet, but I'm getting there. If we use a measure upon ourselves, it is good, it is right, I think, it is consistent and universal, that we should use the same codes upon others. If we have found a set of virtues and morals that we truly believe and have found to be good to follow in our own lives. Should we not be looking for others who don't just claim the same, but do the same? See, I don't think Jesus was giving us a warning to not do something. He was telling us, beware of doing this because you're going to be judged by the same standards you use. And what I'm saying is that is not only what is to be expected, that is good. If you tell somebody that you should be doing this and this, you better darn make sure that you're doing the same thing. And obviously there are exceptions to these sorts of things, such as... But they don't have to do with virtues, they might have to do with biology. You're talking to A member of the opposite sex with something that is very specific to their sex. Obviously, you don't need to be required to do that, or you shouldn't be advised to do exactly the same thing. Might have something similar. But when it comes to universal moralities and values and virtues, it should be universalized. It should be expected of others and of yourself. This is one of the reasons why power is so corrupting. See, because power is one of those ways in which we can escape this. Power means you have, or one of the things that it means for people, is that you have enough influence to say rules for thee and not for me. Because if you judge me by the same standards that I'm using upon you, well, I can just punish you. I can just throw you in prison. I can just fine you. I can just fire you. Power is the capacity to judge without being judged. And that's not to say that you never are. Just look at how people talk about politicians today, or employers, or Hollywood stars. They're still being judged, but of course, if you ever said it to their face, you might get a face full. And that's, of course, why many of us don't. Judge not, lest you also be judged, should give us a set of expectations. You shouldn't first be thinking about how you judge another person. You should first think, how do I judge myself in this same way, in this same area? And then, once you've got that settled and have taken the plank out of your own eye, then you may go forward and begin evaluating and talking to other people on the same in the same sort of standard. This doesn't always have to be something negative, some negative evalu- evaluation of other people. In fact, those who are far more effective in affecting other people's lives have tact and kindness and patience. See, when Jesus said, Be innocent as doves and shrewd as vipers, or sorry, shrewd as serpents, rather, I think we, especially among the churchians, mistake innocence with niceness. We don't even rise to the level of being kind and don't even touch being good. Looking out for the good, which again, is about love, the way I interpret it. We think that in order to be innocent... We had to just be nice to everybody. Be nice all the time. Never offend anybody. What about being as shrewd as a serpent? Using a measure onto others, uh, sorry, using measures onto others that will also be used unto you isn't pointed out as a bad thing necessarily. Removing the plank from your own eye so that you can remove the speck from the other's eye is certainly not portrayed as a bad thing. What Jesus is really preaching, in my opinion, is universal values. If you have a value for another person, a virtue, a moral moral code for another person, have it for yourself first. And I just pointed out how power is one of the ways in which we escape this, and unjustly. Jesus specifically pointed out how the Pharisees were doing exactly that. We know how often Jesus told his parables and his stories and his lessons to spite the Pharisees. Who are we to think that these aren't also among them? Judge not lest you also be judged, Pharisee. The measure you use unto others will be measured unto you, Pharisee. Stop using your power to say rules for thee and not for me, Pharisee. But if you are already accepting universal valuation, if you are already removing the plank from your own eye, if you are already living by a good and sturdy moral code that really works, and you've seen that it works, and you've seen that it's consistent with Scripture, Why on earth wouldn't you go out there and start helping other people to do the same? And if you're going to do that, that must include evaluation, that must include judging. Now, I will say in closing that there is one area where I think it is wrong for us to judge. And it should be obvious because it's the one area in which we have absolutely no right to judge and God has exclusive rights to judge. What is that? Judging where a person's eternal destiny will be. And isn't it funny how often we get this one wrong? We want to believe that this person, X person, who's so very bad, is certainly going to hell. What if it's a thief on a cross? What if this person is one who repented at the very end and God accepted him or her? Now, I'm not saying that we should always expect that to be the case. That would also be to judge, in this way, that is, to evaluate a person's eternal destiny. That is something that is between them and God. It is not our choice to make. I think it's fair and quite right to separate ourselves from people, to not have as friends people who are abusive, who pull us down, who keep us back from doing what is right. Absolutely. But to then go forward and say, I think this person's eternal destiny is X, That's not our place. It is not our right. So, that is my interpretation of these scriptures, and I hope you found it interesting and thought-provoking, as always. And again, I want to emphasize that I don't think this means that we go around judging, judging, judging all the time. What I am pointing out is that when another person turns to us and says, oh, I felt so judged by you, trying to get us to think that we're a bad person for making a valuation, well, that in and of itself, I think, is a very dark spirit, a dark temptation. What we should be doing is asking ourselves over again, Well, am I? Not judging, am I judging well? See, what they're trying to get us to think is that judging in itself is bad. No. Did I judge well? Do I have any reason to believe that I should doubt myself in this? And if not, the right response might be, well, yeah, I sure was, and I still do this is bad, this is wrong, what you're doing. You think if you come back with, oh, I'm so sorry, when that person is engaged in evil, that's going to help them stop and improve their lives? We do not help people by refusing to judge them. We might very well seal their fate for evil.